Welcome to The World on Fire. I'm Greg Wilpert. Last Monday, January 9th, Peruvian police shot and killed 17 protesters in the border town of Juliaca near Bolivia. This brings the total number of civilians killed in Peru in almost daily protests over the past two months to 47, ever since Peru's elected president, Pedro Castillo, was impeached last December 7th. Castillo had served a mere year and a half in office and endured three attempts to remove him. The last one was successful after Castillo tried to dissolve Congress and whereupon he lost the last remorning support he had in the legislature. His vice president, Dina Boluarte, became president and protests against Castillo's removal from office began almost immediately. Boluarte reacted by imposing a state of emergency that suspended constitutional rights, which further aggravated the situation. Joining me now, again, to discuss these and related events in Peru is Francesca Emanuel. She's a Peruvian PhD student at anthro in anthropology at American University and is also a columnist for the Peruvian news outlet Waika. Thanks for joining me again, Francesca. Thank you so much for inviting me, Greg. So now just give us a big brief rundown as to what has happened uh, since Castillo's impeachment. I mean, I gave some of the details, but if you could fill in some more of the gaps uh, of what's happened. And also, of course, I encourage people uh, to uh, check out our earlier interview that took place uh, shortly after Castillo was removed last December. Yeah, sure. So I can safely say that Peru is ruled by an authoritarian and repressive government led by Dina Boluarte. This administration is only governing with the right and the stream right. And in 40 days since taking power, it has killed almost half a hundred working class indigenous and campesino Peruvians. I mean, this government has been committing massacres against its own people. But um, let's go one step at a time. Because in the first two days since Castillo was ousted, there were few protests but they spread out in the rural areas of the country as soon as it became clear that the new administration would govern only with the right and with the stream right in, uh, within Congress. In Peru, the current, uh, the current Congress as an institution is deeply unpopular with an approval, approval rating of 8%, maybe now even less. And we Peruvians hate this institution because many parliamentarians tried to steal the election from Castillo when he won in 2021 by claiming fraud and with no evidence. And we reject them, these parliamentarians, uh, because in general, most of them are corrupt and racist and praise anti-working class policies. Protesters were also enraged because Boluarte and the corrupt Congress wanted to stay in power until the end of the term in 2026. So since it became clear that the right wing within Congress had finally captured all branches of the state, including the executive, by getting rid of Castillo and had managed also to make President Boluarte their puppet, protests haven't receded. Some analysts say that we are under, uh, we are, I mean, Peruvians are un under a uh, congressional dictatorship. And I agree. The epicenter of the first protest and, uh, and the first murders due to police repression took, took place in Apurímac, which is the homeland of the president Dina Boluarte, and it's located in the Andes of Peru. 
the death toll was six. And Boluarte respond announcing that elections would move up to 2024. But protesters dismissed the announcement because they wanted elections now. So protests continue and repression became even more brutal. A nationwide state of emergency, as you mentioned, was announced. And since then, we have had two more massacres. The one in Ayacucho, where the government deployed the military and murdered 10 people. And some of those killings have been described as extrajudicial executions by human rights organizations. And the latest massacre took place in the Puno region on January 9th. 17 people were murdered, you mentioned it, and all with firearms, including a minor and a volunteer doctor who was helping the injured. So these are not random killings. The victims are located in the same regions of the country that voted for Pedro Castillo in 2021 uh, elections. And the victims are campesino people and indigenous people only, all rural residents. There is no victim in Lima where the economic and political power of Peru is concentrated and where one third of the population lives despite the fact that Lima comprises 0.4% of the national territory. So from Lima, the rest of the citizenry is mostly seen as ignorant and lesser beings. And this is partly the reason why this government is still standing. In 2020, there were also protests. Two Limeños, people from Lima, were killed by the police. And the government at that time was forced to resign. But this is not the case today because the killings are located in rural er areas, as I mentioned. So now there are about 100 road, uh, roads blocked and people from different regions and are walking uh, or traveling towards the capital for a big mobilization or for a big protest. Maybe then the government will listen. I want to get to the issue of uh, racism in Peru in a moment, but um, you mentioned that uh, most of the um, participants in the protests are indigenous and campesinos. Uh, but I'm wondering, is there any, is this really, uh, is this all spontaneous protests or are there organizations, is this being organized particular, by particular groups? Uh, what, how do you see the balance of that? Yeah, most of these protests are spontaneous. And, and despite the fact that there are organizations that are also joining the protest and are trying to articulate among them, uh, the demands are still the same as a month ago only that some are now more important than others. The resignation of Dina Boluarte is a widespread demand. Uh, then there is the call for elections now. Uh, people want elections now, not in 2024. People are also demanding the closure of the Congress. And the other demand is the release of Castillo from prison, which continues to be a demand, but has lost some strength in the light of the massacres committed by, by this government. Uh, something that I want to clarify is that the reinstatement of Castillo is an almost non-existent demand. Castillo was not a good president. He broke, broke his promises. He articulated with the right. And although the fact uh, that he was ousted was the catalyst for the protests, Castillo has ceased to represent hopes for change. 
protesters or demonstrators want him released from prison because he's unjustly in prison and also because there is a strong identification with him for all the mistreatment and racism uh, he has uh, suffered from Congress, from pros the prosecutor's office, from the media and from the oligarchy. For example, the charges uh, for which he is now in pretrial pre detention are absurd. And Congress striped Castillo of his uh, immunity without due process. So the population recognizes all of this. But as I told you, uh, Castillo betrayed his promises of change, and that is why hardly anyone in Peru asked uh, for his reinstatement as president. So uh, one of the um, one of the points that you made earlier was that uh, that there's been a tremendous amount uh, of uh, racism and classism against uh, a large segment of the population, obviously the campesinos and, and the and the indigenous population, and that this is fueling the protest. And you also wrote an article, a very good article, recently for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs that outlines some of this. Um, Talk about in what sense uh, Castillo's overthrow and the subsequent protests expose uh, the Peruvian elite's uh, racism and classism. Yes, I already talked a little bit about this, uh, as you mentioned. But yes, I consider that one of the roots of this protest is the structural racism of Peru. It is brutal. We live in a de facto apartheid. In Lima, there is a wall, an actual wall, that divides a wealthy neighborhood from a poor one. And that tells you a lot. I wrote uh, the article you mentioned on how Castillo was subjected to various forms of racist stigma and how that unleashed uh, kind of a mirror effect among his sympathizers. Uh, he was called a donkey, uh, a damn Indian. Uh, he was called uh, like that by authorities by the media and nothing happened. Everything was okay. No one was punished. Uh, so, uh, and this uh, racism is also related to how demonstrators are being described by, by authorities right now. The president, the ministers and the media say that protesters are criminals or terrorists. They say this literally, criminalizing lawful assembly and discrediting reasonable demands. Meanwhile, they, they have presented no evidence in support of their allegations, and, and actually they don't have any. Uh, let me give you some context. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, Peru went through an inter internal armed conflict between a brutal Maoist guerrilla group called Sendero Luminoso, or the Shining Path, and the government. And during this period, the government imprisoned thousands of innocent indigenous and campesino people, falsely accusing them of terrorism and, and actually killed an estimated of 30,000 people. Uh, in the following decades leading up to today, the left and the poor fed up with the system have been consistently discredited by linking it to uh, the shining path or Sendero Luminoso, and every time someone wants to change the status quo, the ghost of the shining path is used by the establishment and the elites as we are seeing it today. But, um, but there is no connection, as I said, between the protests of today and the legacy of the shining path. 
The truth is that the people are fed up with the system and will continue protesting until they feel that there is a response channel towards a, a structural change towards a Peru where they are uh, where they are considered full citizens with rights and protections for all, not just for those in Lima. And, and as I told you, this is a long-standing fight. Someone, uh, or, um, uh, yeah, something that I want to, to add is how this government is criminalizing the left and the protest. It is raiding the government premises of left groups, headquarters of left groups, and arresting campesino leaders and trying to prosecute them as terrorists. Uh, yesterday in Ayacucho, in the Andes of Peru, it, it happened against seven campesino leaders. These seven campesino leaders were arrested. Uh, the other issue I want to say is that the police are using uh, horrendous tactics to criminalize the protests. Uh, they are sending infiltrators to the protests and causing violent acts uh, to justify their mass arrests and the killings. So one of the factors that you mentioned, of course, in, in addition, or let's say making the situation worse with regard to racism and classism in Peru is, of course, the role of the media. And you mentioned some aspects of that. But um, what, what role has the media really played uh, in Castillo's overthrow and also in the situation today? Yeah, in Peru, we live in a media bubble, and this is related to the dysfunctionality of our democracy and the difficulty of achieving justice in the face of any abuse by the government and the authorities. One company in Peru, in Peru owns uh, more than 80% of the written press, for example. You go to a kiosk, you see many uh, newspapers, and you think that they are different uh, newspapers, but they are owned by the same company. Three companies own 84% of all the television, printed press, radio stations, and new websites. It is uh, not random that many protests have taken place in front of the headquarters of TV stations, for example. And the demonstrators know that the Peruvian media misinforms and is an actual ally of the repressive government and, of course, of the oligarchy. Uh, the mainstream media is not covering the massacres. It is really terrible. Just to give you an example, a few weeks ago, Reuters published a video from a security camera that showed a man being shot from behind by a soldier while the man was kneeling to help an injured man. And the Peruvian press did not even report it, despite the fact that it proves the violations of human rights by this government. So in addition, the mainstream media outlets are located ma mainly in Lima and are the only ones that receive public money through state advertising. So the small rural media outlets uh, have almost no resources. And as a consequence, people have to rely on alternative, alternative media uh, and also social media. Peru needs a law to democratize the media so that the monopoly that exists in the media today ends. And we can only have a democracy if there is a diversity of media outlets and perspectives. Now, another issue, of course, is, you know, what is the role of the United States in all of this? 
Um, I mean, uh, the Biden administrations, particularly, and also, of course, the Organization of American States, which normally would take some kind of responsibility or role in this kind of situation. Has either one of them, the Organization of American States, the OAS, or the Biden administration done or said anything so far? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. The United States has been supporting this government from the beginning. And the Organization of American States hasn't said anything about the human rights violations of this government and the massacres. The United States hasn't said as a, uh, from the State Department anything also uh, like against or, or calling to stop the human rights violations or the violence uh, committed by the government against the protesters. Um, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights traveled to Peru in December and supposedly was going to issue a report but it didn't. It went uh, a few days ago. Again, it was the second visit, the second delegation, and uh, gave a press conference where it pointed out how horrible these violations of human rights were. So if we... If, if we think about the inter-American system, yeah, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has denounced uh, these massacres and, and the violation, the clear violation of human rights uh, committed by this government and the criminalizations of the protests. But so far, as I said, the Organization of American States, which mention, uh, actually condemn the attacks, uh, the fascist attacks in Brazil, didn't condemn uh, the the behavior of this government in Peru, and the Biden administration hasn't done it either. It continues to support it. Hmm. And I understand that they even sent some money. Can you say something about that and what that money is for? Yes. So uh, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Peru, announced that a new donation of eight million dollars. Uh, is has been given to Peru to combat uh, narco traffic. Yeah, so this was an announcement within this month since the government of Dina Boluarte took office. So it clearly shows the support of the United States to this government. And that was just before the massacre happened uh, in Puno. But um, now, looking forward uh, to the future, what um, what do you think needs to happen for this crisis to be resolved? I mean, are there political actors in Peru at the moment who are working towards a positive resolution, and uh, what are their chances? Uh, yeah, um, to solve the crisis, we need a transformation of the state structures that reinforce racism and exclusion. A first step would be to open the democratic system so that those groups... Uh, that are protesting and that are excluded from electoral participation can participate in the elections. The party system is practically impenetrable for social movements and for leftist groups without financial resources, uh, which are pretty much all of them. And right now we only have parties that are right-wing and we only have parties that are owned by corrupt businessmen. And I don't know if I talk about uh, this the last time we spoke, but one of the left-wing leaders in Peru, Veronica Mendoza, received about 3 million votes in the presidential, presidential elections of 
2016 and almost reached the second round. But until now, she has not even, uh, she hasn't been able to register her party because of the extremely difficult requirements to fulfill. So uh, that gives you an example how difficult or how impenetrable the party system is in Peru. And uh, thinking about a more powerful step towards resolving the crisis is to start a process of, uh, for a new uh, social pact leading to a new constitution. Um, but um, if you ask me right now how the change could begin to take place, I would... Um, uh, I think it would be the immediate resignation of the president Dina Boluarte and move uh, up the elections to 2023 as people are demanding on the streets. But of course, if the conditions are not met for the participation in the next elections of the excluded, excluded sectors of the Peru society, uh, the ones that are protesting now, uh, the power will be recaptured fully by the right, uh, the right that is being rejected in the streets. And we will continue this long-standing political and social crisis. I, I didn't realize that um, Veronica Mendoza's party, I guess it's called uh, Nuevo Peru, New Peru, is uh, not hasn't been able to register. Would that mean that if there were congressional elections, um, she wouldn't be able to have any representation in Congress? Likely. Mm, wow. Okay. Well, we'll definitely continue to keep an eye on the developments there, but we'll leave it there for now. I was speaking to Francesca Emanuel, Peruvian PhD student at, at, in anthropology at American University. Thanks again, Francesca, for having joined me. Thank you so much, Greg. And thank you, our audience, for joining the world on fire. Until next time.